Welcome to this week's episode of Unfortunately Required Reading. As usual, we've just been shit-talking for 15 minutes before this started. I mean, there has to be some foreplay to the episode. You can't go and dry with Jane Austen. You can't! This week we are covering Pride and Prejudice, or as I'm calling it, Not So Quiet Aunt Jane. Yeah, uh, she's fine, I guess. She's fine. (laughs) I have better feelings about her than I do, uh... Charlotte Bronte? Which one? The one from last time? I yes. think it was Emily. Oh, fuck. Whatever Bronte. Insert Bronte. I will admit that I have been converted to the light side. I now very much enjoy Jane Austen, which is startling for me. Because I think last week I was like, oh my god, I have to read Prime Prejudice again. Uh, I actually had to trace my memory. I thought that I had read this before, and I haven't. Oh. So, I, I mentioned... That after a while, all Brit lit runs together for me in an amorphous blob of bonnets. It truly is bonnets all the way down. As John Green said. As John Green said. (laughs) uh, I don't hate this, but I definitely don't think it's as revolutionary as some people have said. I'll say that. I, I don't think that it's as progressive as some people like to give it credit for. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, I made scones. She did. Amanda made scones. And they look like a strange southern biscuit, which I'm not mad about uh, because I got up very early this morning and made scones. Um, There's also clotted cream, which is, if if I'm understanding correctly, it's cream that is cooked almost like butter, but not really butter. Like, it's heavy cream. Yeah, some of it's separated. I'm going to try this out. Uh, And it's a shockingly expensive import uh, from England. There's also black currant jam. Now, while I was on Sophie the Magpie's live stream, I mentioned that I was making scones. Yes, it was I. It was I that set the house ablaze, um, which is my favorite meme of a fluffy cat being uh, pulled from a burning house with a shocked face that says, "Twas I that set the house ablaze." That is my favorite meme of all time. Uh, there was quite a uh, discussion over current events, and by current, I mean black or red currents. And also, where you put the jam matters, apparently, a great deal. Because apparently in England, there is not a Brexit to be concerned about. There's just a lot of talk of where jam goes, whether it goes under the cream or over the cream, or if you use jam at all. So, like, I also have lemon curd here because I love lemon curd. Lemon curd is delicious. How's this gone? It's really good. I'm so glad. I like it because your version isn't like super dry and crumbly. No, like that's the thing. It's just, I, mm, there's a great episode of a good eats before I realized that Alton Brown hates millennials. Um, that he talks a lot about like biscuits. It's a great biscuit episode. So if you ever want to learn how to make biscuits, uh, I don't remember what the episode is, but it's like early, early, drop to top. Like, early, early Good Eats where he makes biscuits, and he talks about the difference between, like, scones and biscuits. And it's a fantastic example of how the South has taken something that England tried to ruin and truly made it great. The South will rise again, and in that way, uh, we know how to make the best bread. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. So we are being quiet because we're gathering up scones because it truly is about to be bonnets all the way down. I'm very excited about this. So... I'm doing the jam with the cream over it. I'm not mad. I'm very happy with it. Yeah. So, 
Get you a man who will make you scones at 8 o'clock in the morning, which Tori has successfully done. Amen. And has only just been $8 on clotted <clears throat> cream from uh, Central Market. World Market, sorry. World Market, Central Market. We've got both. We have all the markets. I think Lemon Curd is phenomenal. I'm going to have to try that next. So, get out your bingo cards. Because uh, I think we're going to start doing prizes for this stuff. Mm-hmm. So, I'm excited about it. I'm holding, I'm holding the jar for Tori because I'm a good person. What I would recommend is if you are doing the bingo cards, you take a picture of it, you share it on Twitter, mm-hmm. and you hashtag it bingo card, but mm-hmm. you make sure that you direct it to us. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we will never see it. Also, a slew of posts I assume 80-year-old women are posting about bingo cards. <laughs> also, join us next week where I torture myself and watch the Netflix adaptation of Dracula by Stephen Moffat. I am so excited for this. I will be live tweeting, and I will be drunk in my own home. <laughs> on Rex Goliath on, Sweet Red? On Rex Goliath Sweet Red, and the greasiest pizza I can find. At this point in time, too, we are also drinking what it, it's the Jane Austen. It's from a listicle of cocktails inspired by authors. And this is the Jane Austen. It's rose water, gin, and Earl Grey tea syrup. And uh, topped with, like, rosé. I'm not mad at it. I added too much rose water. It's it's very rosy. So, follow the recipe, because I was doubling. Follow the recipe, and if you make only one glass, it only asks for two dashes of rose water. That's probably just enough. I added too much, because one, I'm southern, and two, I don't know what the fuck a dash is. Like, what is... I think I think metrically, a dash is, like, an eighth of a teaspoon. See, for some reason, every time you say dash, all I can think of is that episode of The Simpsons where she's like, tappa, tappa, tappa. And I don't know why. I don't know why either. Uh, So it's very floral. I don't hate it, though. I'm looking for any excuse to eat before I start doing a short story long, because scones are, like, my favorite thing. You want me to start the short story long so you can eat? No, I got it. Okay, I trust you. I made her scones. I did the right thing. I'm so glad. Amanda did the right thing. I made scones. I'm going to set it down, and then I'm going to look at it longingly, the way that uh, Mr. Darcy secretly looks at Elizabeth Bennet. He, um, at the very end. At the very end. Spoilers. Spoilers. Mr. and Mrs. Bennet live with five daughters and with financially precarious situation, because when Mr. Bennet dies, the entire property will go to a male cousin due to current inheritance laws at the time. So the daughters all either need to marry rich husbands or be screwed by English law. The estate will go to their cousin, Mr. Collins. So basically they can be poor or end up as governesses if they don't get married. Mr. Bingley shows up and brings along his friend, Mr. Darcy. They rent the house that's like next door. It's like a really nice manor house. Mr. Bingley falls in love with Jane Bennett. Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth fall into hate at first sight due to a miscommunication and Mr. Darcy's constant scowl. Jane goes to the Bingley house for tea, but as her mother makes her go there without a carriage in the rain, she gets sick and is their guest for several days. Elizabeth is worried about her sister, so she walks to the house and takes care of her, but quickly learns that the Bingley sisters are terrible snobs and not to be trifled with. A much better Jane and Elizabeth return home with the belief that Jane and Mr. Bingley will soon be engaged. Elizabeth goes to town with her sisters, Lydia and Kitty, and runs into Wickham, a soldier who claims to have been wronged pretty badly by Darcy. Elizabeth goes, yes, okay, I have proof that he's a dick. So Elizabeth's cousin, Mr. Collins, comes to have dinner with them, and Elizabeth gets a proposal from Mr. Collins. He is 
the one I mentioned at the beginning, he's going to inherit the estate, but he's terrible and annoying as all get out and won't stop talking about his patroness. Elizabeth emphatically declines the proposal, but her best friend Charlotte Lucas steps in and marries Mr. Collins. Mr. Bingley disappears, breaking Jane's heart, and so to feel better, Jane goes to London to spend time with her family in town. But she finds out after trying to visit the Bingleys, who are there, who she finds out, she finds out that they are intentionally avoiding her. Elizabeth goes to visit Mr. Collins and Charlotte and meets Lady Catherine, Mr. Darcy's snobby aunt. She sees Mr. Darcy and he proposes marriage in a super insulting way, so Elizabeth insults him right back and tells him no way in hell. She also finds out Darcy conspired to break up Jane and Mr. Bingley, which is super shady. So Darcy suddenly, after this whole, like, fight about, like, we're not getting married. Kerfluffle. Kerfluffle. Darcy feels the need to explain himself and why he did what he did to Wickham. So he ends up writing a whole letter, which is, like, the most passive-aggressive shit, um, and handing it to Elizabeth. So it turns out that Wickham was going to run off with Darcy's 15-year-old sister to get all her money because he used to live at the house with um, his family, and he blew through money and was totally a womanizer. So when all this is going on, they find out that Elizabeth's super stupid sister, Lydia, runs off with Wickham. And to save her reputation, which they don't know, somebody steps in and pays a bunch of money, which is evidently Mr. Darcy, who pays Wickham to marry Lydia, so it'll save her reputation. Meanwhile, Lady Catherine shows up and gets in Elizabeth's face and asks if Mr. Darcy has asked her to marry him or if she's engaged. She tells her, no, we're not engaged, and Lady Catherine insists Elizabeth promise she'd never accept him. Elizabeth basically rolls her eyes and tells Lady Catherine she won't promise that to get out of there. Jane and Mr. Bingley get reunited and get married, and Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy fall in love because of the wonders of what he did for her sister and the fact that he's rich as fuck, and they get married. The plot, end. Also known as plot clairvoyance. Plot clairvoyance. Now, I have a question. Yes. Now, I did read the book this time. Yay! Pat on the back of my shoulder. If my arms are too short to reach, they are. Thank you for patting me on the back. Uh, I don't really get the insult in an insulting way because the way John Green illustrates it in Crash Course that he propo- that Mr. Darcy proposes with Burger King onion rings, pretty much. Okay, cool. So basically, what he does is he goes up to her and he's like, "Okay, so it's my better judgment, the judgment of my family and friends. Your family is absolute shit, but I'm totally in love with you." And she's like. Why the fuck would you say that? To okay, me? he's just a dick. Got it. Because I mean, I read the dick part, but I didn't read it as such of a high insult because I'm a creature of the internet and I've been told many worse things for much less. Oh yeah, no, literally, if you're a girl dating on OkCupid, okay it's like, hey girl, whatever, you're fat anyway. What? Like literally, I didn't respond to you in ten seconds. Like I'm confused. I had a guy after uh, two messages say I like women's feet. I had a guy, after two messages, ask me to come to his dungeon. I actually might accept that. I was not. Applications are still open for a Scotsman or a Welshman uh, to sweep me off of my feet. Though I am quite heavy, so if you actually physically can sweep me off my feet, uh, more power to you, sir. Is this going to be like a Red Sonia thing and he kind of has to best you in battle? or That's what happened with my second boyfriend uh, when we met during the Texas Junior Classics League. That's right. Yeah, I beat him in a gladiatorial match and I had him pinned. He said, I love you. <laughs> that literally happened. So, at the risk of making you quit the show, mm-hmm. I refer to Wickham as Dickham a lot, because he's, like, really into prepubescent girls, and it weirds me okay. out. Okay. Is this, is this an instance where we throw the dreaded it was a different time flag? Can we not? Because I he's think, creepy. Okay, but I think we have to. 
But he was creepy. Yes, I understand that. But I think we have to throw the it was a different time flag on the field. I mean, I get it. Kitty makes a big deal about being the first one to get married. Mm -hmm. And she's so young. And I'm like, fuck off. But I mean, like, think about what. So we'll talk about, like, whether this is. Or not Kitty, or not. Lydia, sorry. What, Kitty Pride? No, Kitty, Kitty is just young and silly. <laughs> no, Lydia is, Lydia is the dick. She's she's fine. Like, why do you hate all these women? I don't. I just hate Lydia. <laughs> and Lady Catherine. Well, I like Lady Catherine. She's just an asshole. But I, she's a rich asshole who gets what she wants, so I don't hate her there. She's Cersei Lannister. She's Cersei Lannister. And Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Right. Uh, I mean, I don't know. We, we, we can call him that. I, I do think that we have to put on the it was a different time card i'm not happy about it but i think like legally if we had to consult our lawyers which we have neither yeah we don't we don't have lawyers yeah please don't sue us you'll only get like half of a bag of of burger king onion rings and like maybe a diet coke i can apparently make scones so you get that in the settlement i suppose what's left of this uh devon cream this is very expensive devon cream i'm (laughs) As someone who imports a lot of goods from other places, I'm always very aware of the fact that things are expensive. There is no reason why something that has, like, three ingredients should cost as much as it does. None whatsoever. And it's more of me kicking myself for not just making it. Because as soon as I googled where to buy it, there was, like, five recipes of just how to make it at home. So I should have just made it at home. I kind of feel like if I ever go back to England, I'm just going to load up a suitcase full of clotted cream and just be like, sell it on the black market in San Antonio. Can I just say, I know that you're a Yankee by the way that you put an emphasis on San Antonio. Yeah, we all know this. I I started (laughs) noticing it as I was listening to episodes of the pod. I'm like, every once in a while I forget that Tori's a a damn Yankee. Mm -hmm. And And then she says San Antonio. And I'm reminded. We have to, we, I have another podcast and I have to basically constantly deny that I'm originally from California. I mean, you never said Bexar County. That's, well, I said that the very first time I drove into this county Mm -hmm. and then I went, well, that can't be right. And when the radio station went, Bear County, I went, oh, that's how you say that. Like Texas. Yeah. It's like the Try Guys when they were trying to pronounce where Eugene is from because Eugene, uh, Eugene from formerly BuzzFeed is actually from Pflugerville. Oh. Yeah, he's what we can claim him. He's one of ours. Uh, and like the Try Guys are like all the like mostly like California or Midwest guys like trying to pronounce Bluegerville is just the Floggerville. The Flogger. Uh, do you want to talk about some theming? Let's talk about some themes. Uh, so we legally have to call this a romance novel. Well, was it what is it a sensibility novel or a sensational novel? Sure, sure. I don't find it very tantalizing uh i will say i do like the idea of not everyone falling in love at first sight that is nice because that is a suspension of disbelief issue that i do have with a lot of books um i do personally think it is incredibly undercut by the ending that's just me but also like my so i don't think we talk a lot about uh like reading lenses like theoretical uh, ways to look at things. So one of the things that I'm really big on is like reader response criticism. So your personal experience as a reader will always color how you approach a work. Mm-hmm. Always. You cannot separate yourself as a reader from any work. Hello, screaming child outside. 
We're not torturing children. It's literally just the next door neighbor's kids. I might be mentally. I don't know. Um, <laughs> You're glaring at them. Yeah. Right. It's like Carrie. Yes. Uh, so me as reader with my tumultuous dating history, which I can admit, I personally am too cynical to appreciate a happy ending. I think this was great because it doesn't have everyone fall in love immediately. And then they get to the ending and it's sort of like a uh, Jane Eyre a little bit where I was fine with it. Well, fine. I used air quotes <laughs> until that ending. Like if she, if we had just cut out that ending where suddenly everyone ships off, I think I'd be like, this isn't terrible. But um, love is a big thing in this. And it's a very, I know that critics say that it isn't a very capital R romantic love of like feelings being overwhelming, but this might just be the modern person in me. It feels very saccharine. And she, like Jane Austen, liked to play with those concepts a lot as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And just make it more like, there's just these little digs that you kind of pick up as you're going through. Or she'll throw something out there. Like the fact that when she's walking with Caroline Bingley in the house and he's like, well, there's only two reasons I can think that you guys would be walking around the house. One of them is it shows off your figure and they're like, Oh, you're so gross. But internally they're like, yeah, that's what we're doing. Like Mr. Bingley's or Mrs. Caroline Bingley is doing that. Yeah. I do think that Jane Austen is a better writer than Emily Bronte. I now concur. Um, I used to be hardcore Bronte. Hardcore. It was like Charlotte and Emily forever. I'm sorry. I still have to read Anne, guys. Um, and then now I'm like, oh, I don't I don't hate Jane Austen. Okay. I mean, I, I, as someone who doesn't like Britlet, this was tolerable, much like Mr. Darcy. It was tolerable. Mr. Darcy kind of just feels like lukewarm tea. Like, you know, there's probably still some benefits in it, but you kind of wish it was a little hotter. How much hotter does Colin Firth need to be? Okay, Colin Firth is a whole other thing. We were jumping I apologize. Shark. I apologize in advance. I'm going to not make this a Gary Oldman I will. Again. I will. But Colin Firth is beautiful, beautiful man. Yeah, I think the hard on that you have for Gary Oldman, I have for Colin Firth. And I don't blame you. He's, yeah. he's beautiful. He's He makes it hard to hate Mr. Darcy. And I think that's kind of a problem. Yeah. I, think, I think it kind of... So there's this thing called framing in uh, media where um, depending on how an action is framed using either rhetorical devices or like screen tricks in movies, it tells you how to feel about something. So if a woman is being brutalized, but all of the lighting in the movie is very soft and the music is soft and everything is soft, your brain cognitively disassociates and doesn't think that it's an act of violence. And framing is a huge problem in media because it tends to color perception of things. Hence, like, why a lot of um, women being brutalized in, like, Law and Order and stuff like that is very sexualized. Because that's a bad frame to view this. And now we then take that into our daily lives and think that when women die, it's kind of hot. That's a whole problem. I do think that Colin Firth being as attractive as he is does negatively impact much of a shitlord Darcy could be. What I've, I've kind of appreciated now that I'm a little bit older is Darcy basically going, I am really bad with people. 
I am bad with people. I don't have anything against you. I don't know you. So I'm not going to tell you my innermost secrets. And I get that now. But like you're reading the story and you're like, God, why are you such a dick to everyone you meet? Yeah. It's just he literally does not have that social grace or emotional like understanding. There's no emotional intelligence in his initial interactions with people. Yeah, I think uh, I think a lesser writer like Moffat would assume he's a sociopath. I like how Moffat constantly uses sociopath and psychopath incorrectly. In I shows. said that intentionally to get a rise out of Tori. Yeah. I said that intentionally <laughs> to get a rise out of my very own River song. River song is not a psychopath. She's not. And I don't think that Sherlock is a sociopath. Sherlock is not a sociopath. He's an asshole. He's an asshole. He's bad with people. He's probably on the spectrum someplace. But and he's, he's clearly not... gay for Watson. It's like... It's, I don't know, he's, he's obviously married to Watson. So one of the other things that we have to talk about definitely is class. Yes. Um, something that's really interesting is when people read this book, they often think that the um, Bennett family is higher up than they are. And yeah, they have one or two servants. But at this period of time, the whole big deal is that she is technically not high enough class for Mr. Darcy and his family and things like that. Bingley is rich as, as fuck. Like he, Darcy, Lady Catherine, they're all up at this higher echelon of people um, as far as class goes for the time period. So the Bennets are doing pretty well, but they're not considered to be high enough up. And especially having five daughters versus having a son of any sort. They're in tough shape because that estate is going to go someplace else. Now, yeah. we don't really have that now. Um, yes, but we it, do. To some extent. <laughs> but um, at that point in time, it's a really big deal. And you see a lot of this in Downton Abbey as well, where it's like... The, be the best version of this? The best version of this. Oh, well, your cousin just happens to be so very attractive and you're going to get married. And now everything is saved because you have a son. Like... I will say, uh, as much as I don't always agree with John Green's interpretation of things, in the second part of the Crash Course episode on this book, he does talk, he does break down, like, the economics of this, and I think it's great. If you're having a hard time visualizing, which, in all fairness, I kind of did, too, uh, he does a great breakdown of, like, the Bennets bring in about this much a year, and, like, Darcy brings in about this much a year, like, and it helps put like a monetary air quotes amount on this stuff because it does just sort of feel like a bunch of rich people faffing around. And that's like when Mrs. Bennett is losing her absolute shit over how much money Bingley makes a year and then realizing that he might make more and that her kids, because one of her daughters is going to be associated with high society, then all of her daughters might be associated with high society. And Darcy hears that part and gets really weird and tries to break up Jane and Mr. Bingley. But it's, very much she's she's very much watching it from a mother's perspective of my kids are going to be fucked and mrs hi fireworks in our neighborhood uh welcome <laughs> to san antonio um every so everyone in this book whether or not they acknowledge money is very concerned with money um even mr collins where he's acting like oh you know you're totally eligible for this much money a year if we get married. But I don't even think about that. It's like, bullshit, you don't think about that. You spend all of your time at Lady Catherine's house. Like, calm down. So basically, and, just watch Down Abbey and watch Game of Thrones. Yeah. Oh, and then Charlotte Lucas is... is her. Oh, what in God's God. name? Okay, I don't know if that's fireworks or gunshots now. 
That's fireworks. Uh, if you visit our Amazon wish list, we have some sound dampening panels that we would love. If you care about our sanity and your sound quality, please feel free to send us a gift. We do greatly appreciate it. <laughs> I love your shameless plugs. I'll actually link our uh, our Amazon wish list. <laughs> On Dear Hank and John, uh, the dynamic of the two brothers is, is that John is the shameless whore. And will plug anything anyone is doing. And Hank is like the one who's desperately trying to get back on topic. And I'm definitely in this scenario the John Green. Yes, you are the John Green. I'm the shameless attention whore who will plug a stick in the middle of the street. I'm like, if you want to support us, that's really cool. Um, but also- and I'm like, give me money and I'll show you my ankles, <laughs> you thirsty fucks. <laughs> We had gloves on at the start of this episode. Like but a couple of fetishists. It's too hot in this room. It's not that hot. So Tori's a little, Tori is a sensitive and genteel lady. <laughs> Listen, I am an orchid. I am a hothouse flower. Anyway. Delicate and will die out of spite? Yes, actually. Um, so there's a lot of in gender politics in this as well. There's a shocking amount of gender politics in this. Um, because basically you get this rule... Where five girls does not equal one man. And that's a bitter pill to swallow. Nearly as aggressive as this rose water in this cocktail. Fair. And the fact that um, we have Elizabeth Bennett, who is incredibly intelligent, um, very well read. She, she learned most of her stuff from her father. Um, he trained Jane and Elizabeth to both be very smart, be able to hold their own. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of see this separation where Mary is caught in the middle. Mary is the sister who's very much like, I'm never getting married. I'm going to go to the church or something. Like she's, she's very pulled into herself. But then you have Kitty and Lydia who spend most of their time with their mom who are like, we're going to go get married. Like that is the most important thing to them. They're going to go flirt with officers, dance, eat at fancy parties, and then get married probably to an officer. That's like their big thing. I think for me, this makes a lot of sense growing up in like Southern debutante culture. Like, this makes a lot of sense to me, but it also might be why I hate it so much. Uh, because this absolutely feels like just being raised in a Southern family. Of mm-hmm. you have no work outside of who you marry. Anything that you do to enrich yourself is just enriching your husband. Um, and just being overly concerned with the worth of men versus the inherent worth of women. And I get it was a different time, but it's frustrating because there are people that still feel this way. Mm-hmm. Um, if you need a good fleshing out of Southern debutante culture, shockingly, Bojack Horseman does a great job of it with Bojack's mom. It's heartbreaking and heart-wrenching, and I cried a lot through a lot of those episodes, but it's a great, almost biting satire of that Southern culture that anything that you do is to enrich yourself to be more attractive to women. Also see the opening of Mulan during the Matchmaker (laughs) song. Well, it's interesting, too. I mean, even up until, God, I want to say the 60s, they used to tease women who went to college and say, you don't have to go get your degree in communications to get your MRS. Right, they get your MRS. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Meanwhile, like, I went to college in the early 2000s um, and was able to get my degree in three years. Nobody ever said that shit to me. Wait, the early 2000s? I graduated high school in 2003. I just became very aware of the age difference between Tori and I. I, I know. Uh, I entered high school in 2004. Aww. <laughs> You're 
sweet baby. I just became violently aware of the age difference between Tori and I. Can I be Lady Catherine then? Yes, sure. Okay, cool. I'm going to interrupt all of our conversations and demand that you play the whatever the piano thing she has. A harpsichord? I don't know what it was. I don't Tori, know. Tori, I woke up this morning and I made you scones. I really don't know what else you want from me. I love this so much. Um, so gender politics is a thing. Uh, I don't think that Jane Austen, again, is a good enough writer for it. And by good enough, I don't mean that she was bad. Just like the, she was writing what was contemporary to her, which is now a reductive and unfortunate view of women. And the funny all. thing is, too, a lot of her drafts that she would initially write, she would have to go back and rewrite. There's a whole series of letters that she wrote to her sister Cassandra about, I don't know how much money I should say that this person makes a year because I don't know, because I used to say it was this much, but now I think it might be this much would be better. Because she was trying to keep it contemporary as she was writing, things were changing so quickly at the time period. Yeah, and I mean, I even have this as a fiction writer a little bit, where I'll write male characters, but I'll still write them in a lot of passive roles, because I only know the passive role of being biologically female. I could never, even though I, even though in gender I get to make play as a man a lot, I will never have the same socialization to know what it's like to be able to put my metaphorical dick on a table and get what I want. I will never know that. I will never know the socialization that ingratiates me so much to feeling like I've earned anything, that a woman is a tool or an item or anything like that. I, I will never know that. I just had this image of you taking a device and plotting it on a table and being like, give me what I want. That's just Sundays when they have to be cleaned in the dishwasher. There you go. Um, you, you can put them in the dishwasher. <laughs> What? Things I learned today. Yeah, you can put some of them. You can put some of them in the dishwasher. Does it say on the box, like, dishwasher safe? Actually, some of them do. I'm not joking. Do you just have, like, a special shelf in the dishwasher for dildos? Uh, you use the one that you put, like, baby bottles on, uh, so you can store multiples. I would like to apologize to anyone under the age of 18 who's currently listening to this. I'd like to apologize to any family, friends, or future employers who are listening to this. Well, close friends, no. Close friends, no. They all know what's our problem. They all know. Uh, so that's some gender politics. Um, I'll talk about courtship because Tori just took a giant bite of scone and I'm trying to save her. You can you can have the rest of the scones. Okay. <laughs> I'm trying to keep Tori happy. Um, I'm trying to keep Tori happy. I, I bake scones. There's a multiplicity of spreads here. I'm displaying my wealth as Mr. Darcy would have. <laughs> I'm doing the least amount of effort and it is received with maximum gratitude. Mm -hmm. I truly have gone back to being the Mr. Darcy. Yes. I've done the, the minimal amount of effort and I've gotten the maximum amount in return. It's true. Thank 100%. You. Thank you. Uh, so courtship. Uh, this is the Regency era, era, which we'll talk about more in a little bit. But um, when we think about like romance being this highfalutin thing of like, gentle palm touches and like leaving locks of hair and shit like that. That's high Regency. Like the high drama of courtship and writing letters and blah, blah, blah. It's, there's some great documentaries on the Regency era, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but um, the tokens of affection and stuff like that, the, the pageantry of courtship is very important, which is why when, people don't do it correctly, like Darcy, 
uh, it's perceived very ill. And it's very similar to with Lydia, who, instead of following the rules of courtship, runs off with Wickham um, and lives with him without being married. And it's like such a big scandal to her family. Like her family is like, we are going to be ruined. Right. And this doesn't just ruin like Lydia's hopes. It ruins everybody's hopes. Right. Uh, see also Japanese culture when it comes to dating and relationships and also see Southern culture when it comes to dating and relationships. Because, uh, like, in Japan, you saw, like, marriage applications and, like, it's treated like a business transaction a lot of the times, honestly. Oh, filling out a marriage application is a great way to feel like you are worthless as a creature. What? So, it's almost like submitting, like, an okay Cupid profile, but, like, imagine you are in, like, a livestock show, but you have to breed yourself. <laughs> so, like, you have to list what kind of debt you have. Is it good debt or bad debt? How much debt? Um, you have to list any medical issues. Um, height, weight, eye color, family, how far back you can trace your family, um, whether you're educated, up to what level, what's your degree in. Like, it does, it honestly does feel like greeting yourself for a livestock show. But, like, in all of the worst ways. Ooh. So, like, at least for me, the positives are I do have debt, but it's mostly good debt. I am educated up to an undergraduate degree. Um, my family, from what I can trace, at least on one side, is pretty okay from the part where we were legal citizens in America in 1865. <laughs> so I do have those things going for me. The things I don't have going for me are, uh, that one, I'm old now. One, now I'm old. And two, I have a laundry list of medical issues. So, I'm not quite unmarriageable, but quickly approaching. Pretty unmarriageable. Then again, I am. Already You're already married. married. You don't have to do the application. Woo! Um, one of the things that I find super interesting, having gone back through this book again, is when Mr. Collins is proposing to Elizabeth, and she's like, no, no, I'm not going to do this. And he goes into the whole thing. Oh, I know. I know. You fashionable ladies like to uh, play coy and say no. And she's like, legitimately, no. Back the fuck away. And he's mm. like, it's okay. I'll come back and ask another time. And she's like, go away. This is still a thing that men do. And I, I yes. Yes. Okay, Cupid, for sure. Hey, yeah. thanks. You seem really nice, but I'm just not interested. Well, let me give you all the reasons why you should be. No, 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 no. I'm good. Thanks, though. Um, I love that Mr. Bennett does the whole thing of um, your mother will never speak to you again if you don't marry him and I'll never speak to you again if you do. Because You can't hates, win. Because he hates Mr. Collins so much. Like when he's doing like the high steps and stuff in the book and, and also in every movie adaptation and you're just going, no, I will say Matt Smith is the best Mr. Collins because he plays it so straight faced that you you're like, Wow, this guy's a massive dick. He jumps real high, though. <laughs> he does. He, he's here. <sighs> All of this is so dumb, but I kind of love it. Oh, I, I needed this. I've been reading about the gulags and okay, but that's that's so on you. No, yes, no one yes. has. No one has condemned you to a gulag of your own design. No, this is this is all my my fault. And uh, my husband's like, please, please stop reading those books. Oh my gosh, if I have to hear one more fact about Russia, I just glanced over and found the pre-Raphaelite shelf. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I glanced over and I found it. There's some 
And there's still more books in the other do room. We, do we need here. to make that amendment to the bingo card? Is you min- you somehow bring up reality life? I didn't this time. You it did. was me, but <laughs> you tricked me. Uh, so some historical context. This is the Regency period. Uh, we've said it a few times now. This was during the time of England uh, when George the Third went crazy. Yes. Uh, he was not always crazy. Tori's putting back on the glove for some reason. Because we're talking about the Regency period. Okay, well, I'm going to be a deviant to keep the glove off. Okay. Um, basically, there's a lot of fancy dining, there's a lot of drinking, and there's also a lot of concern that maybe a lot of this stuff is bad. So we mentioned that a little bit when we mentioned uh, temperance during the Bronte episode. And now we're starting to become even more concerned by we, I mean, people have reached England. I'm a black deviant. I wouldn't have been allowed. Um, this is just true. Um, we're now even more concerned with those things because we see the excess of George, who was Hanoverian, I believe. Or was he Stuart? I think he was Stuart. I don't remember anymore. Uh, there's a great documentary called Fit to Rule, hosted by Dr. Lucy Worsley, who is amazing, and I love her. She also does a really good special on Jane Austen, which we'll link to as well. Yes, which we've skipped over. Um, basically, there's fancy parties, there's a lot of gin, there's a lot of imports from the New World, there's a lot of opium as well, because China... There's just a lot of stuff. It's an interesting period of history that you should look at. Uh, Hanoverian monarch. I was right with Hanover the first time. Yes. Um, which was bastardized from German. Mm-hmm. So, congratulations. The English crown is not English. Hasn't been for some time. It has not been. Um, so, it's actually a really, really fascinating uh, piece of history. I would definitely say there is a part about Stuart to Hanover to Hanoverian than Hanoverian to Windsor. That is just those two segments of Fit to Rule. I say watch all of Fit to Rule, which goes from Tudor to Stuart, from Stuart to Hanoverian, from Hanoverian to Windsor. Watch all of it and just have a great fucking afternoon. Yes. Because Dr. Worsley is phenomenal. And she really she goes to a lot of different places and talks very in depth with experts and just she has so much enthusiasm. It's hard not to get into it. But she's also really empathetic. Like, I started a, the Hanoverian episode where they mentioned the death of a Queen Charlotte back then. Not the yeah. new baby one. The one back in the olden times. Mm-hmm. And she handles it with such empathy that, like, I actually started tearing up a little bit. Because it was just such a tragic way that she died. There's also a lot of parallels between uh, Charlotte and Diana. That's mm-hmm. very uncomfortable, including dead princess teapots. Yes. Which is a thing that I want. If you... <laughs> Okay, explain to them what a dead princess teapot is. So during the time when Charlotte passed away, there was a lot of a uh, rush to memor- to memorialize her because she was very beloved. Again, like Diana, mm-hmm. like she was down to being uh, analogized to the English Rose. Like she was very popular because her brother and dad weren't. Uh, so there was this hope that with Charlotte, that she would really bring together a new vision of the English royal family. And she was pregnant. She actually loved her husband, uh, which was something that didn't really exist back then. Uh, but she genuinely loved her husband. And uh, she was set to deliver a baby. It went horribly wrong. The baby died. And then she died a day or two later. And it broke the heart of England collectively. So there was a lot of memorabilia around her death, um, including these teapots that feature like a weeping Britannia 
and like just her face on everything. Um, her husband opened up one of the castle grounds of where she loved to visit. And there were so many people that visited and took pieces of rock from one of the grottoes she loved that the ceiling is gone now. Oh, wow. Yeah, there was this beautiful blue ceiling to one of the grottoes that she visited a great deal. And so many people broke off pieces of that grotto that that blue was gone. Um, and we tend not to think about it that way anymore. But, like, there are so many uncomfortable parallels to Diana that you have to kind of give credit to it. Um, but, yeah, that Charlotte, that was very, very sad. But that sparked my fascination with Dead Princess Teapots. Um, just because I think the way that cultures and countries remember people is so fascinating. And I especially love that in death, it seems to kind of bring everyone together. Like, I remember uh, when John McCain died, and it kind of being this moment of, regardless of what side of the aisle you were on, you can acknowledge that this man served his country, and that he died. And if you have to leave it at that to maintain respect, you do, and that's where you go. There's this beautiful unification sometimes in death, whether it's in celebration and adulation or in a genuine mourning and sadness. So that's the Regency era uh, in a nutshell. There's a lot of really, really interesting things in there. There's also a list that I found of um, a bunch of weird things that happened during the Regency era, like something that was very in vogue was to watch pineapples rot. Yes. <laughs> yes, it was a really big deal to be able to afford a pineapple because it had to be imported. Mm -hmm. And then you basically would just leave it on your table and let it go. But it, because it was just a symbol of, oh, look, I have this wealth. I can import this. Right. It's amazing. And it's like, um, but it's really delicious. Yeah. You should eat that. Yeah. So I'll, we'll probably link that list in the show notes as well, because it's just fascinating. Um, so that's Regency. It's a, uh, a, a good time. Um, during this period, too, you were starting to see the retreat of agrarian culture to more industrial. Um, rights of women were starting to become a big thing, um, as you would see with Wollstonecraft. And uh, Jane Austen is the most famous writer of this period. I'm so glad that you brought up Mary Wollstonecraft. I love her. She's like awesome. Who is? Vindication of the Rights of Women. Uh, the mother of our lovely Mary Shelley who wrote Frankenstein. Excellent work. But also an amazing human being in her own right. Yeah, I do kind of hate that there doesn't seem to be a middle ground when it comes to her, that either she's just the badass feminist or she is the womb that gave us Mary Shelley. What I love is if you try to read Vindication of the Rights of Women, it's still very reachable today. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, which was really cool because I'm thinking, oh my God, it's going to be all this language that I'm going to have to parse through. Nope, no, it's, it's, it's very manageable. Um, most of my essays in college were through a feminist lens because obviously... So I've read that multiple times. So this is me getting really excited. Jane Austen was born December 16th, 1775. She was a Sagittarius. Fuck it. Anyway, um, the weather was really bad at that time period. So she didn't get baptized until April. And this was really only a big deal because she was born to an Anglican clergyman and his wife. Uh, Jane Austen's initial life was really crazy because her dad ran a school for boys out of their home in Parsonage. So there was always something going on. She was mostly taught at home, but she did go to a year or so of boarding school with her sister, Cassandra, and she started writing plays and novels and juvenilia and all sorts of stuff. Um, she loved books, music, and dancing for her letters and notes to her sister. Something to keep in mind, balls in the home, like you, you see these massive rooms and stuff in, in a lot of the um, movies and adaptations for Jane Austen stories. 
but usually they were held in much smaller rooms than you expected. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be like a family room or something where they just moved all the furniture to the side and just everybody kind of hung out and then collapsed into chairs as the night was going on. Um, and a lot of times they would have like their tables set up and they'd have to have multiple tables in one room. So it'd be like having a really big family gathering. Yes. So when Jane Austen turned 20, she met Tom LaFoy, who was a young law student. She saw him at a bunch of balls, but the flirtation ended very, very quickly. Her family was fine, but his family did not approve. So he didn't propose, which she was very surprised by. Um, and he had to end up marrying somebody richer than Jane to support his ten siblings. So in her world, money really did come before love. And that's right after the Tom LaFoy breakup. That was when she started writing Pride and Prejudice, her first draft of it. So a lot of personal feelings thrown in there, um, which may be why she has such a happy ending, other than the fact that that would be considered to be more publishable. Sure. I think we will need to cross a bridge one of these days over our varying views of authorial intent. Yes. Um, She wrote a lot in the epistolary style. Like Dracula. Yeah, exactly like (laughs) Dracula. It's where you write things through letters and news articles and things like that. She was worried when Pride and Prejudice was published that it was too frivolous. Um, she described it as, quote, rather too light and bright and sparkling. Which, which I think is hysterical. Yeah, it feels like a bit of a slog to me, but I can see how she feels that way. Uh, Jane also basically created this thing called Free and Direct Discourse, which is like third-person omniscient, but better. And I realize that that is something that I, as a writer, do a lot. Um, and if I have to explain, like, the different points of view when it comes to reading... You have first person, which is your I, me. You have second person, which is you and your. Uh, you see that more in fan fiction. Like, you don't get a lot of novels written in you or, like, choose your own stories, which are very, very rare nowadays. Unless it's that Carolyn Kapna, I think, book, the you or Hidden Bodies, mm-hmm. a TV show they just did on Netflix. Anyway. Right. And then your third person can either be third person limited, which is a, you kind of stick to, I guess, one point of view third person. And you know their opinions and views, and really no one else's. Or there's third person omniscient, where it's like God is watching this scene. Most books are written in third person omniscient, uh, just because it's easy. And this free and direct discourse, I realize, like when I look at my own writing, I do this a lot. And I have, I mean, I I have to give Jane Austen credit. I'm not happy about it, but I have to. I have no choice. Um, and then in Crash Course, John Green says this book feels like it's written by your funny uh, funny and mean best friend. And, and it's true. And I think yeah. that's maybe why I like it so much now is it's like these little jabs and digs and descriptions of people that you're like, okay, that's how I would have described it if I wasn't being nice. I guess because I am most people's funny but mean best friend. <laughs> Not wrong. I... <laughs> uh, I do still think she's kind of throwing softballs at things because I... Here, here's a point on your bingo card right roping Game of Thrones. I'm uncomfortable with the fact that I am just Elena Tyrell. You are. You are. <laughs> oh, the lemon cakes will come out after the cheese. The lemon cakes will come out when I say the lemon cakes will come out. Yeah, like, like, I just, I'm uncomfortable with the fact that I'm just Elena Tyrell. So there's a lot of lines where people are like, ooh, that's scathing. It's like, no, it's not. That person hasn't cried yet. That's true. But also, again, I'm Olena Tyrell, so I'm going to be a lot harsher. So as everyone's funny but mean best friend, uh, I mean, it's fine. It it definitely could be meaner. (laughs) No one has cried. 
She was meaner in her letters, supposedly. She was very mean in her letters, which most of them were burned. Yes. Stop. John Green mentions this, but I have to agree. If you have a friend or a family member who's a writer, and realistically, even if they say explicitly burn upon my death, don't burn that shit. Well, Cassandra is either beloved or hated for this, her, her sister, because she took it to heart. She buried a lot of the really mean letters and things that she felt that nobody needed to know. Mm-hmm. Because she was like, I want to do right by my sister's opinions and by my sister in general, which is so funny because then when her nephew ends up writing this book, it's like, oh, quiet Aunt Jane. She was so devout, such a wonderful woman, and she never did this and she never did that. It's like, Aunt Jane was a bitch. Meanwhile, <laughs> Jane is writing about being hungover mm-hmm. after parties, which I think is amazing. And then we get the lovely Twitter now by... That the group uh, Drunk Austin. I love Drunk Austin oh, so much. Oh my gosh! And they start following us, and I love you, Bianca. Um, I I have like my little like besties now on Twitter because you convinced me to come back to Twitter by accident. You're welcome. Um, she saw how much fun I was having. Yeah, and I was like, okay, well, I'll do it for my other podcast, and then I'll just like creep around. I mean, realistically, I mean, this is a tangent. I understand when people say that Twitter is a hellhole, but like, I'm in in real life. I'm a social media person. You're I, I quit because I got death threats before. Which, just which for anybody, who yeah, would, which is valid. Yeah. Anyone who just like passively is like Twitter is a hellhole. I don't think you're pruning your social media garden enough because like I see very few hot takes that I don't agree with, and anytime I do, I mute the fuck out of that person. Like you tailor your experience online. Now, if you are getting things that are beyond your control, like death threats, which is valid, I'm not going to minimize that, but, like, for the most part, if you're just, like, mad at the way, like, trolly people are talking, don't engage with them. Like, the algorithm learns what you like. So guess what? I don't get a bunch of sexist Game of Thrones hot takes, because that's not the place I hang out in. So if you continue to engage in this shit, it's going to show, and you're going to keep getting more of the things that you lo- that you don't like. So... I love Twitter. It's one of the places that I can more freely be myself uh, because it does move so fast and it is so collaborative. But I am very empathetic to people who say they don't like it, but I just, I wonder what about it they don't like. Don't worry. I can't burn your Twitter after you die. No, you can't. But I can delete it upon my death and I can ask that it is deleted upon my death, which may not be done. Um, Fun fact, as someone who used to work in the death care industry, as we are all gross, filthy millennials now, Figure out what you want to happen to your data upon your death. Otherwise, someone's going to post your Zanga fan fiction. (laughs) And you will be ruined posthumously. So, figure out... You can set up a legacy uh, person for your Facebook that will be in control of your Facebook upon your death. Um, You can engage with... There's, like, some kill switch directives on Google where all your data just gets kind of, like, voided. Start thinking about those things because... Don't, I have it in my will to burn my fanfiction, or at least to bury it with me, to seal it inside with me. Okay, and I don't plan on digging it out. I, yours like a Rossetti. Okay, now you can mark that square. Yeah, now you can mark a pre-raphaelite <laughs> square. That doesn't exist yet, but I'm thinking about changing it. Um, so unless you are willing to dig up my Draco Harry fanfic and thus exhume me, well, congratulations that you burned the prize. If you are so desperate to read a Draco Harry smut that you are willing to desecrate my eternal rest by all means 
the fan fiction is the prize for <laughs> ruining my tomb. <laughs> All right. Though you'll never find my heart. My heart is meant to go somewhere else. I'm going to give you some more facts about Jane Austen. <laughs> you don't want to know where my heart's supposed to go? I don't want to know. Okay, that's fair. I do. Lake Stern in Bavaria. Oh. So I can be with King Ludwig II, my favorite king. Ludwig. Please continue about Jane Austen. So at one point in time, um, her father retired from his clergy life. Can you do that? You can if you're in the Anglican Church. Oh, because and I'm lazy. Yeah. <laughs> I love the Anglicans. They're my favorite. Anyway. I'm teasing. So they retired and moved to the town of Bath, which Jane was born. She wasn't enthused with it at all. Um, there are all these tales about how she supposedly fainted when her family said they were moving. And because she was unmarried, she had to go with her family. Um, as someone who has stayed in Bath, there's not really a whole lot to do there other than go to the Roman Baths. And that's like a one-time thing. Um, quite, I mean, for other people, I guess, if you're going to take the waters for your health. Um, they moved to Four Sydney Place, which was newly built and a flat walk to the city center. So her dad's arthritis wasn't crazy bad. And you can actually now rent this like an Airbnb overnight, which is kind of cool. So if you're a hardcore Austin fan, you can go to Bath and you can rent where they lived. So she never married, but she did accept one proposal, but just overnight. She told him afterwards that she could not love him and could not accept a marriage of convenience, much to her mother's chagrin. I almost said Mrs. Bennett because it's a very Mrs. Bennett feel. Um, it. And we already talked about how Cassandra burned her letters, so we don't really know a whole lot more about that. Um, she has a small travel writing box where she kept her writing while moving around. It's pretty much considered to be a holy relic to a lot of Austin fans, and it's at the home that they have set up for her now, like this uh, one of her old her homes that they've kept in good repair for the most part. For the most part. When she was published, she was published as by a lady and anonymously during her life. Sounds about right. For, especially for that time period. Um, as we kind of talked a little bit about, the family legend does try to make her look more like good, quiet Aunt Jane. And her family members were very protective of her. Uh, what's interesting is she kind of went out of print, I think, between 30 and 40 years after her death. And then she started to become very, very popular much later on. Which is interesting, too, because she was, or one of her fans was George III's son. So... That's a whole thing. Who was a drunk and did a lot of opium. Yes. Sorry. I mean, that doesn't discredit his taste, just not not a popular person. Um, Jane Austen made her own homebrew. She made Bruno. Which is awesome. Um, and then there's a beer company, which I don't remember the name of, but they actually have a small independent blend called the Jane Austen made in her honor. Can we also, I had another moment where I realized that you are a Yankee because you say aunt and not aunt. Yes. I don't say aunt. <laughs> aunt. Yeah. <laughs> In 1816, Austin was starting to feel really bad. Um, she decided to ignore all the warning signs because evidently we are from the same strain of people. Mm -hmm. uh, she slowly started to deteriorate. She had a lot of issues with her joints. She couldn't get up. Some folks thought she had Addison's disease. Others think it might have been Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, but in 2017, the British Library thought that she might have been poisoned by arsenic in the local drinking water. So that's something that's a fairly recent take. But we don't know. We do know that she died at age 41 with a handful of her books being published posthumously. If she did die by arsenic, she is the second author that we have ascribed that death to. Yeah, which is uncomfortable. I mean, arsenic 
does exist in like chill levels in most things. Peach pits? Or is yeah. that cyanide? That's cyanide. Sorry. I said too quickly to not sound like a murderer. <laughs> okay, I made almond cookies for my office and walked around and told all of everybody who would listen, don't worry, there's nothing poisonous in this. It's just almond extract. So when I, I took a forensic science class when I was in high school and uh, our final project was to commit a murder and I was the only one that uh, got away with it because I uh, baked cyanide into cookies over a long period of time. So, fun fact, Amanda knows how to get away with murder. I'm scared. So, Jane Austen has a lot of very famous fans, including Queen Victoria, even B.B. King. The weird ones are Osama Bin Laden liked her work, and also a bunch of French anarchists um, who, before they died, they read a lot of Jane Austen and praised her. Um, Mark, for what? I don't know. Mark Twain hated her writing so much that at one point in time he said he wanted to dig her up and beat her to death with her own femur <laughs> which that is like the most mark twain shit ever i kind of like that um rudyard kipling took some of her her credit and wrote a story in 1926 called the Jainites, in which soldiers from the first world war come together form a masonic lodge and it's all based on their love for jane austen novels so it's like the sisterhood of the traveling pants but gay I guess. I kind of want to read it now. I'm like, oh. uh, Ruyard Kipling is disgusting, and I hate him. Oh, okay. Uh, I've never read anything. The Jungle Book? I haven't read The Jungle Book, which I feel like I've failed. Okay, real talk, no one has read The Jungle Book. I've watched the movie, the Brit- or the Disney movie. Yeah. And the one that they so, made in 96 with Lena Headey and pretended that they didn't make. Are we going to just keep talking about Lena Headey? About how much I love her. She's beautiful. How she uh, do horrible things to me and be okay? Hashtag same. Uh but yeah, Kipling is terrible. Uh, there's a lot of colonialism in um, the Jungle Book that's just very uncomfortable now. So he's awful. So if you want to see some drafts of her manuscripts, the British Library is amazing. It's in London. Um, you can go there. You can see copies of Alice in Wonderland. You can see some of the original Beatles music. They have a written copy of Beowulf. And uh, it was one of the a draft that they found. Um, they have the Magna Carta. Sometimes they'll bring the other copy of the Magna Carta in, and then it's like, oh, look, they're all together. And then I get scared for a while that the library's going to burn down. Um, but it's really cool. Also go to the Tower of London, London and see the Raven Master General. Yes! Um, so if, if you don't know, there is a belief that if the Ravens ever leave the Tower of London, the Tower will fall. And the only time that they did, there was an earthquake. Yes. <laughs> What's interesting now is they keep their wings clipped and they have a breeding program. So. It's not an aggressive clipping. They can it's still not. fly. Yeah, they can still fly. Um, I'm, I'm defensive of the Raven Master. I apologize. And I will say that they are very, very well taken care of. And they're ravens. so big. They're huge. They're massive. If you ever want a bomb in this cruel world, uh, the Raven Master has a Twitter. I didn't know that. He has a Twitter and he's very active and he'll post uh, the Ravens and they like getting pets. Uh, they oh. like stealing food from tourists. Yes, they do. They love stealing food. There's Merlina and there's Poppy. Yes, the Raven Master has a Twitter. I'm going to be best friends with them. Yeah, I he's great. He's great. Uh, they're very big. They're they're too. They're they're massive. They're too big. And Last time as ever was 2013, and I was just like, holy crud! Yeah, and they make a noise that sounds like condensed death. <laughs> like they they sound scary, but like. The Raven Master, uh, he takes such good care of his birds. Like, they'll come up and, like, they'll just, like, honk and demand pets. Like, angry death cats that can fly. Um, I love them. 
so yes, you can visit and they're great. There's many of them and they're all very well taken care of. They eat better than some actual humans. That's true. And they will steal food from you. Also, if you ever talk to a yeoman warder, which a lot of people refer to as beef eaters, like if you do ceremony the keys, they are super chill and laid back. They look very, very serious. But if you take the time to talk to them, they will tell you some pretty freaking funny stories. There are some fantastic documentaries about the yeoman warders on YouTube, which we'll probably link. Uh, we just revitalized our YouTube, so we're plugging it a lot because I did not spend three weeks uploading and encoding videos for nothing. Um- <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's another way to listen now. If you're like, I don't, or I'm at work and I still have access to YouTube and I can't listen to my phone, but if I sneak my headphones into the computer jack, nobody can see it. Exactly. Um, or you're using Bluetooth like most humans nowadays. Yeah, I do that a lot. Um, you can listen to us on YouTube, but we'll probably start making a playlist of the things that we mentioned. Because we do mention yeah. a lot of video sources uh, because we're filthy millennials. And we do include a lot of them on the website, but just to make it a little a bit easier, we kind of want to do playlist. just a playlist so you can just hit it and go. So we can, like Mr. Darcy wanted to? Yes, right? Against his butter judgment, evidently. <laughs> do we need to go to, uh, oh, we have to talk about uh, roofs. We do. Um, I will, Do you want to plug something in here? The reason that you've probably heard a lot about Jane Austen is when her stuff came out of, um, you know, the publishing rights and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it became incredibly popular and money making in the nineties and early two thousands mm-hmm. to push her um, into the chiclet market. That's why all of a sudden you started seeing all these re-released covers and pastel colors, and Bridget and Jones' diary, Bridget Jones' diary, <laughs> butterflies, <laughs> huge books based on the Regency era. Um, there's all sorts of dating guides, mystery novels, things about Jane's life and time period. Okay, well, stop, collaborate, and listen. If you're taking dating, yes, I did just do that. If you're taking dating advice from any of these books, abandon all hope you who enter here. For real. Like, please, For real. Please do not, don't, don't take any of this as gospel, please. I'm just going to go ahead and say that. You can think it's a good time, and I'm not going to shame you. But, like, do not go into the world hoping to find your own Mr. Darcy. And even um, if, if you see the movie, it's Miss Austen's Regrets. It's based off of a lot of her letters. She has a whole part where she's talking to her niece in the movie where she says, Mr. Darcy doesn't exist. He only exists in this world because I've made him up. And that's, like, basically the only way in the world to find a man like this is to make him up. I mean, you can find a mm-hmm. lot of random assholes out in the world. Some of them have money. Redeemable assholes? I don't think he's redeemable. I really don't. I don't think at the end that he's any better than he was at the beginning. I think that Emily lowers her standards. Or Elizabeth, whatever her name is. You're still mad at the Brontes. Jen. Uh, <clears throat> random girl. I think she just lowers her standards to find him tolerable. Which is a word I've used a lot in this episode because Darcy uses it a lot. I, I don't think that he's reformed. I think standards got lowered. At like at the end of Babe, he'll do. <laughs> That'll do. <Pitt>. Yes, <laughs> I think that's what happened. That'll do, Jane. That'll do. Yes. <sighs> Where am I lying? So one of the things that we found as well. Um, yes, you can donate a roof tile to rebuild her home museum, mm-hmm. which is something that I think we're considering doing. We are considering doing it. It's and not also, expensive, but we're just not. poor. Um, but I'll go ahead and link to that as well on our website so you can see what we're talking about. Yes. So we actually got 
listener questions. We did. Not as many as last time, but uh, we did. These are from Crystal, who's amazing. Thank you. Hi, Crystal. Um, does Jane Austen see herself as the heroine in her, her novels? Yes. I, I don't think so. Okay. I think she tends to make herself more side characters. Okay. And have her side characters kind of give observations and things. Mm-hmm. But I think I, I don't think she would see herself as Elizabeth Bennet. I think she does only because I know the authorial moment that she was uh, at the end of a bad proposal because of the, or before this. So I would say yes. But like with any interpretation of things, we are allowed to have different answers. So I, I like this one too. Are the men written as women of the time, looks and money only, or does she form them more completely? Um, I feel like her female characters are more flushed out than her male characters. Her male characters do kind of feel more like just here's a stand in, here's a sexy lamp. Um, are you, are you I'm appropriating? I'm appropriating your sexy lamp. I mean, they are lamps. But they're, I mean, they're very beautiful lamps. They are, they are very beautiful lamps. They're beautiful, rich lamps that pay off bad people to marry 15 year olds. Okay, look. If this is the hill that you're going to die on, I have no choice but to respect you. But there are other far more questionable things in this work than that random dude. That's true. Thank you. Um, I do love this. Wickham, is he truly a villain or wrongly accused? I think villain. I think he's very, very in it for the money. And he's going to go and try and make himself look good. And maybe it's just because I've dated a lot of Wickhams. I'm wondering if that's just my I think so. And I'm also about to kick you out of Slytherin because I see no issue with this. I, I think you are dangerously close to being kicked out of our house. Yeah, I'll probably I, end up in Ravenclaw. Yeah, because I see no issue. Why is this evil? Why is this bad? Wouldn't you want to make an advantageous decision? It is simply chess. Why would I not want to put myself in a position where I could easily kill off my husband, inherit his money, and live comfortably for the remainder of my days? I'm just going to sit this quietly in the corner. Or <laughs> <laughs> I become Bellatrix's stranger. <laughs> like... I mean, I, no, I, I'm not going to say wrongly accused. I don't think, I, I don't think that he is blameless, but I don't yeah, I think, think he knows what he's doing. Right. But I don't think it's any worse than any other guy during that time. I, I am truly showing off that I'm a Slytherin lass. There is a follow-up to it. Um, are Wickham and Mr. Bennett villains? We kind of already answered that with Wickham. Uh, Mr. Bennett, I don't think so. I think he's just doing his best and he is so fucking tired because Mrs. Bennett has ruined his life. Um, like, how many times in the book does he basically just, like, kind of shut her out, like, nope, nope, don't want to hear this again, been dealing with this for 23 years, we're done. Right, and then he just, like, dies, and it's like, finally, I can get some rest. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't think, I think that we throw around villain a lot in these things, because I think it's because we're trying to find tension in this book, because yes. there is none. This is a tensionless book. It is. There's, there's nothing negative in saying that. There is no, like, raucous will they or won't they. We don't care. I care. I didn't care. I didn't care at all. I was like... I was hoping I, they wouldn't. I flash just Twitter. Oh, it's so beautiful. Ugh. That's what happens. <laughs> Listen, my life is a horrid mess. So... I mean, same, but that's why I want bad things to happen to bad people. I mean, usually. I'm a monster. This has been established. So, there are a lot of adaptations. Frankly, there's too many adaptations. They, they basically make an adaptation every few years now. It's sort of like Shakespeare a little bit, where like everything is based off like the same five Shakespeare plays. Mm-hmm. It does feel like this is one of those just like archetypal books that we keep adapting. 
So, things that you can look for. There's a 1980s Pride and Prejudice. That no one cares about, so let's get to Colin Firth. 1995, the Colin Firth adaptation is on Hulu right now. It is. And I need to tell all of you that are writing a book or writing a Jane Austen movie of some sort, the lake scene is not in the book. They included it in uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, and I'm like, oh, Lord. Um, Which is another adaptation that's way more enjoyable to watch as Lizzie trying to attack Mr. Darcy when he initially proposes the fireplace tools. But also... Colin Firth in a wet linen shirt. Wet linen shirt. It's it's beautiful. And as we've discussed on, on the internet, on Twitter, um, this is peer-reviewed science that it is just perfect and it can stay. Yeah, like, I mean, this, I, I think I like this more as a movie than I do as a book because as a book, it is just frightfully dry. And as a movie, there's at least nice scenery to look at, like Colin Firth's butt. Yeah, no, that's... that's there it's is a, some quite nice scenery to look at. Before we tossed a coin to our witcher, that was... Mm. Anyway. <laughs> I think I hate you. I know a little bit. Um, there is a 2003 version, a 2005 version with Kira Knightley, a 2005 version from India called Bride and Prejudice. Okay, that sounds like it could be fun. There's a book that just came out called Unmarriageable by Sonia Kamal, which is really good. Lovely. Uh, Death Comes to Pemberley. There's a whole series of Jane Austen mysteries. Uh, Miss Austen's Regrets, which I talked about a little while ago, mm-hmm. and Becoming Jane, which is a book that was evidently closer to historical, but the movie is not historically accurate, so don't use it if you're writing a report on Jane Austen. Uh, yeah, basically. Um, most of these are fine. I think I like the Colin Firth adaptation again because there's some nice scenery to look at. Um, though otherwise I still... Oh, Bridget Jones's Diary. Oh, and also Austen Land... Lost in Austin. <sighs> Shit. The, sorry, there are so many. There's Especially them 90s, though. I mean, it, I would almost say it follows, like, a nostalgia cycle. But I... Kind of like how we get a whole slew of vampire movies every few years. Yeah. Do I just explain what a nostalgia cycle is? You do. So a nostalgia cycle you see in media where there's usually, like, a 20-year, a 30-year, and a 40-year... So, like, if you think about the 90s, we were really, really nostalgic for, like, the 60s, so the 30-year nostalgia cycle. And then, like, now in the 2000, well, now we're in 2020, but, like, in the late 2000 teens, we were super into, like, 80s and 90s culture, so that was a 20-year, 30 cycle. Uh, it's basically just all that is old is new again. So, similarly, we go through these cycles of, like, great storytelling, air quotes, like, vampires come and go out of fashion, depending on... Um, historical and cultural things going on like we saw the rise of the vampire in like the 90s and the 2000s because we had metaphors for like disease and shit like that uh you'll see like mummy movies coming back into favor because we're concerned about like colonialism being bad now finally we're finally concerned that maybe colonialism was bad how nice uh so it does seem like we do go through these cycles of finding these stories romantic or not. I do think that the further we get into understanding feminism and how like the female mind works and what true equality looks like, I wonder if we will continue to lose books like this because it is, in as many ways as it is progressive, it is still to me a product of its time, which then inherently means it cannot be feminist to me. I'm sorry. Like, I think it's just such a product of its time that it can't be more than what it is. And that doesn't mean that it's not good. That doesn't mean that it doesn't have value. 
but I'm not willing to put it on a pedestal as other uh, scholars are willing to do so. Fair. Thank you. Did we have to study this in school? I didn't, um, but I was highly encouraged to read it by my teachers, and I hated it in high school. But now I actually quite enjoy it. I mentioned this at the top of the show. I thought that I had. Uh, I guess apparently I haven't because I went through my essays because I've kept every essay that I wrote. Wow. Yes. Um, I guess I didn't have to. Uh, all Britlet does kind of run together to me because truly is bonnets all the way down, which is, I think, the last good joke John Green's ever made. I kind of want to wear a bonnet. I almost bought one for this, and then I went, no, I'm good. It's too hot in this room. You, how are you going to survive our first live show? I don't know. Like, I spend a lot of time in costume. I'm I'm concerned about you. We'll have to get multiple. I'm also, just going to bring a fan. We have a fan on our wish list if you'd like to help us uh, alleviate the pain of the uh, Halloween live show where you nearly watch two uh, large women have heat stroke on camera. <laughs> where am I lying? I don't know what I just did. You went too far down. There we go. All right. So we have a lot of resources. Uh, obviously, Blue No Pen- more so than usual. Crash Course, it's bonnets all the way down. It's a two-part um, uh, episode. I think part one is better than part two, but part two does go into some of the economics, so it's useful there. There is a really great book by Claire Harmon called Jane's Fame, How Jane Austen Conquered the World. Uh, a lot of that is about how she kind of went out of print and then how her family's attempts and um, just people who genuinely loved her work brought it back. There's also what we were talking about early. It's Worsley, right? Worsley, yes. Yeah, who did Jane Austen Behind Closed Doors. There is a website called schmoop.com that has a whole thing about the Regency period. There's the janeaustenhousemuseum.org.uk. Um, there, we're going to link to the scene in with Mr. Darcy in the water. Um, because we have to. Because we have to. There were... All sorts of surprising Jane Austen facts. There's, ugh, there's a lot. Okay, and there's even a whole thing about men- from Mental Floss about how she did her own home brewery. So I'll I also just that. love that I use the word Pruno, assuming that everyone would know what that word means. Pruno's prison wine. You usually make it in the toilet uh, with something that ferments easily, like oranges. There you go. You're welcome. Our next book is Hamlet. I'm actually really excited about this. I am too, because I get to watch like Andrew Scott and David Tennant do their interpretations. There's a fun play with Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh. Who I think is attractive. Um, I feel like it, it's kind of like Adam Driver. It's the light that you I see I don't him think in. Adam Driver is attractive. Okay. Adam Driver was attractive to me in the last Star Wars when he smiled, and every other time I was like, oh. I think that Cumberbatch is more attractive than Adam Driver. That's fair. Okay. Um, so if you want to find us on social media, you can find us at Unfortunately Required Reading on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately RR on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately Required on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately Required Reading.com. Yep. And if you'd like to suggest a book for the podcast or talk to us, we're at unfortunatelyrequiredreading at gmail.com. If you'd like to contribute to our wine and cheese fund, or in this case, the SCON fund, uh, please consider sponsoring your two favorite drunk literary critics at anchor.fm slash unfortunatelyrequiredreading. We love all of our sponsors and uh, are happy to continue to do this as a labor of love and an excuse to day drink uh, on the weekends. Yep, that's fun. Yes. Now, um... For the love of God and for the love of bonnets, uh, go read a book.